Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, I'm going to read for us, and then I'm going to have the privilege of introducing this morning's preacher. But first, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it, when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's Word. Seated. Well, I have the privilege, seriously, of introducing someone who needs no introduction because it is our very own Pastor Gerald Heastan, but this morning, he does need to be introduced because something significant happened for Gerald this week. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I haven't even finished the introduction yet. Probably many of you, sounds like, uh, know that he has been beavering away on a doctoral dissertation for the better part of six years now while he's been carrying on a thousand other pastoral ministry responsibilities here at Calvary. And just this week on Tuesday, flew over to the United Kingdom where he had his doctoral dissertation on Wednesday at the University of Reading and uh, flew back on Thursday. We had on the schedule for many months now for him to preach this Sunday, and he had every exit ramp to not preach this Sunday, but, but was delighted to do it anyways. But to make a long story short, he passed his doctoral defense with flying colors. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, he had no revisions for his thesis, which is a huge, huge deal. That's like getting an A-plus on your doctoral dissertation, which is no joke. And so we, we, we're delighted for him to have finished this huge accomplishment. And I know Gerald's delighted. I know Jill is delighted he's finished with this. But we thought we would share that with you this morning so that you can join us in congratulating Gerald. And, and, hold on. And welcoming to the pulpit, I dare say for the first time in human history, Dr. Gerald Heastan. Well, well, 
I'd like it if you would all cheer like that every time I come up to <laughs> preach. Just kind of keep that, keep that going. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Wilson, for that introduction. <laughs> all right. Well, back to business here, folks. So we're working our way uh, through our Advent series on Jesus our child king from the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're picking that up again today with the text that Pastor Todd has already read for us. And Advent, of course, is a season where we celebrate Jesus as we're anticipating the day when we celebrate Jesus' arrival. It's a time of, of, of looking forward, a time of waiting in anticipation. And Advent um, is a season that is in many ways similar in the church calendar to Lent, what Advent is to Christmas, Lent is to Easter, but, but Advent, of course, is a bit more, um, it's, it's a bit more anticipating a happy event, where Lent, of course, is anticipating uh, first Good Friday and then Easter to follow, and consequently, Advent tends to be sentimentalized uh, in the church culture. I don't think necessarily um, uh, completely wrongly, but uh, there's a good warm feeling about Advent, kind of the, the glow of the candles, the, the, the comfort, sort of a hallmark hall of fame in the Christmas or in the Christian calendar sort of uh, season, right? Family friendly. But Matthew's version of the story is not quite so warm and cozy. As we've already seen from the text this morning, there are some dark ominous tones that are beginning to emerge in the musical score. And next week uh, in our text, things are going to take a very tragic and dark turn with the slaughter of the innocents. None of the gospel writers, Matthew not least, were attempting to write a script for a feel-good movie. Jesus did come to bring peace on earth as the angels announced in Luke's gospel, but he also came to bring a sword. It was not peace without any cost. In today's text, we are introduced for the first time, as it were, to the baby Jesus. And what we see from our text this morning is that right from the very beginning, Jesus divides and he polarizes. Before he can even speak a word, he is simultaneously the cause of trouble and unrest to some, and he is an occasion for rejoicing and worship to others. And the varied responses that we then see to Jesus in this first of Matthew's introduction to the, to the baby Jesus provides a sort of template for helping us think about the ways that we respond to Jesus and why we respond to Jesus the way that we do. So our text, as Pastor Todd has already read, is Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Trust that you still have that in front of you there as we dig into our text. So Jesus, Matthew tells us, is born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the birthplace of the great Davidic or the great Jewish king, King David. And as we saw in the first week of Advent, Matthew and his genealogy is concerned to link Jesus to David. He wants us to recognize that that Jesus is the fulfillment of the, the, the great promise given to David that one day his son would sit on the Jewish throne. And so, so Matthew is connecting us to David to show us that, that Jesus is the long-awaited son of David, the rightful king of the Jewish people. So, of course, it makes sense then that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. 
Immediately in our passage, we're introduced to the primary characters of the narrative. The first is Herod the king. The second are the Magi. These are the two kind of focal points of of Matthew's narrative here. And uh, perhaps uh, you uh, know a lot about Herod the king and a lot about the Magi, but just in case, let's get our scorecard uh, settled here. And let me just tell you a little bit about these uh, two groups to help us understand the narrative that then unfolds. There are a number of Herods in the biblical writing, and all of them are universally rotten. So if you can't remember your one Herod from another Herod, don't get too worried about that because they're all bad guys in whatever narrative you're reading. So just remember that part of it. So Herod is kind of the quintessential uh, bad guy, and he is here in Matthew's text. Herod was the fortunate son of a politically savvy father who had allied himself with, a, with a, some Romans, uh, some, the victorious Romans in some of their wars. And Herod in, inherited his father's political Midas touch and eventually secured for himself the title from the Romans, King of the Jews, with rule over the land of Judea. And this is an important point to recognize that Herod starts the story as the king of the Jews. Of course, another one who has just been born is king of the Jews, and this sets up some of the conflict. But Herod is referred to as the king of the Jews, but he wasn't Jewish. He was actually half Edomite, which was a neighboring tribe, and on again, off again, uh, uh, enemies of the Israelites. And then the other half of Herod was Arab. So his relationship with his Jewish subjects was, was rather uneasy at best and troubled and downright hostile at worst. Herod was fundamentally a ruthless and insecure ruler, and the violent lengths to which he went to hold on to his power were extraordinary and even notorious in his own day. All the way back in Rome, they knew about Herod and the ways that he tended to hold on to his power. He divorced and banished numerous wives and their children in an effort to upgrade to more politically expedient marriages. And then he went on to kill, now listen to this, he went on to kill two brother-in-laws, one wife, a mother-in-law, an aged father-in-law, and three sons, all of whom he suspected were plotting against his throne. So kids, let that be a bit of perspective for you when dad won't buy you the next iPhone and you think that you have the worst father in the world. Just be glad (laughs) that he hasn't killed you, your brothers, your mother, your grandparents, The emperor Augustus, who was the reigning emperor at the time, joked that it was better to be Herod's pig than a member of his family. So that's Herod, right? This is the king of the Jews that is on the throne into the land in which Jesus is born, Herod. The next up are the wise men, or the magi, who have come from the east. Now, in the ancient world, it was believed that one could look to the stars and that the stars would portend of events that were to come. They would give signs of of uh, great kings being born or rulers. They would tell about when to go to war, when to make peace, when to do business. The stars held lots of answers for those in the ancient world. And many kings and emperors made military and political decisions based on the position of the stars or other astrological phenomena such as comets or eclipses. And the magi were court officials. The job of the Magi was to be a counselor or an advisor to the king or to the emperor or perhaps to a governor. The job of the Magi was to read the stars, understand the stars, 
and then give advice and counsel to whatever official the Magi was serving. It was very similar, perhaps, in the same kind of role that one we might think of if you remember your Old Testament history of Daniel. Daniel was one of the wise men of the, uh, the emperor's court. And so Daniel will be looked to to give advice, to interpret dreams, or to, uh, to, to understand signs. And this is what the Magi were. They were looked to by the king, whatever their king was, we don't know who their king was, to give counsel. The Magi, uh, we don't know where they came from exactly. We know that they came from the east, so to the east of the Roman Empire, east of uh, Judea. And uh, maybe it came from the Parthian Empire, which was the great rival power to Rome uh, in those days in and around the land of Persia, maybe further east. In any case, they have observed something in the sky that signaled to them that a great king was to be born in Judea. Bible scholars look at different ways to try to go back and look at the, uh, the um, astronomy to figure out what it is that they may have seen. It could have been a comet. Uh, there were some comets in and around the time of Jesus' birth, although the dates don't match exactly. There was some alignment of some planets that actually are pretty interesting, that it may be what the, uh, the Magi had seen. Uh, perhaps it was a singular comment that hasn't uh, returned or that we don't know about. For whatever the case might be, they had seen something in the sky that had signaled to them a king would be born in Judea. And for whatever reason, these magi in their own empire, seeing the, uh, the, uh, the, the star of a Jewish king arise, were impressed enough by this that they were willing to leave their homeland to see this new king for themselves. So we have Herod, who is born king of the Jews, as a principal actor in our narrative this morning. And then we have the Magi, who are in another empire, who have seen a sign in the heavens that the king of the Jews have been born, has been born, and they've journeyed then. They've made their way to Jerusalem to find this newborn king of the Jews. And so now we pick up our narrative. Matthew tells us that the Magi show up in Jerusalem, and they're asking the whereabouts of this king of the Jews. And as you might imagine, Herod, who is particularly uh, paranoid, is troubled by their question. He calls together the scribes and the priests, and he asks them where the Christ is to be born. Herod had been in and around enough the Jewish people to know that there was this idea of a Christ who one day would come, this great Jewish king. And so he wonders, perhaps, if the Magi have come and seen a sign that maybe this is a sign of this Christ figure that the Jewish prophets have spoken of. And so he calls together those who understand the law And he asks them where the Christ was to be born. And the answer comes back that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The idea of a shepherd king who would arise from the land of Bethlehem. Clearly, this is the Christ, the son of David, the great Jewish king. So Herod summons the wise men to them, and he asks them when they first saw the star. He wants to get some of the timing right on this. And he sends them to Bethlehem with instructions to search for the child and then bring him word about his whereabouts so that he too can go and worship him. But of course, we know that he really doesn't desire to worship Jesus. We know that he actually desires to kill Jesus. He sees Jesus as a potential political rival, one who has been born to come and supplant him. He, Herod, is the king of the Jews. 
But Jesus has been born king of the Jews, a direct confrontation to Herod's throne. The Magi go their way to Bethlehem. They find Jesus. When they find him, Matthew tells us, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. They fall down at his feet and they worship him. And they present him gifts fit for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Similar here, perhaps we can might Perhaps Matthew might be having us recollect back to when the queen of Sheba came to Solomon, the son of David, the great king Solomon, and she brought him gifts fit for a king. Psalmists speak of of, uh, Gentiles coming and bringing gifts to the Jewish king. And so here we see that in some way fulfilled in Jesus where these magi come from the east and they bring gifts fit for a king. So we have Jesus, the Son of God, born into the world, being sought by two very different kinds of people. On the one hand, we have Herod, who is troubled by Jesus and seeks to kill him. And on the other hand, we have the Magi, who are enthralled by Jesus and seek to worship him. Two very different responses that will mark the whole of Jesus' life. And not only his earthly life, but even on into the present day. All right, so what accounts then for these two different responses, and how did these responses help us understand and think about our own responses to Jesus? Well, understanding Herod's response is easy enough. He fears Jesus as a political rival. Herod, like every despotic ruler, was paranoid and determined to hold on to his power, and he likely didn't know a ton about the promised Christ, but he knew enough to know that there could not be two king of the Jews. It was either Herod's rule or Jesus' rule. It couldn't be both. And Herod was not willing to surrender his rule to Jesus's. Herod's posture towards Jesus brings into stark relief, I think, the same sort of dynamic that happens even today in our own lives. Jesus was and is the king of the Jews, to be sure, but His kingship, we learn as Matthew's gospel unfolds, extends beyond just the Jewish people to the whole of creation, on down through the ages of history, even to the present day. His kingship extends even to you and I. Abraham Kuyper was a great theologian, and he wrote this statement. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The Father gave to the Son all things. Jesus came as the great Jewish Messiah who who was not only the Jewish Messiah, not only the son of David, but the son of Adam as well. He was the one to whom all the kingdoms of the world belonged. And as Jesus came into the world humble, a baby, into Bethlehem as the son of David and the king of the Jews, he confronted Herod in Herod's claim of kingship. And he confronts us in our own desire for self-rule. We are born into a humanity that values self-rule Almost above all, we want to be our own little sovereigns, our own kings and queens. Some of us have this impulse, I think, to lesser or greater degrees. Some of us have this impulse of a higher need to control and to dominate. But all of us have it to some degree. And we want to be in charge of ourselves, even if we don't necessarily need to be in charge 
of all aspects of our environment. We want to be in charge of ourselves. But Jesus' claim as king confronts our desire to be self-sovereign. Now, we may not be inclined like Herod towards such violent ends, towards violent lengths, but we are inclined to keep Jesus at arm's length. We're tempted to keep certain areas of our lives off limits to his reign. Certain areas where perhaps even as Christians we might say, I'll surrender to the lordship of Christ here, 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 but not here. Students, perhaps you are willing to surrender to the lordship of Christ when you are at church, when you are at home, but you're not so certain you're willing to surrender to the lordship of Christ when you're at school. Because surrendering to the lordship of Christ at school might complicate things a bit. It would change the way that you speak. It would change the way that you treat other people. It would change perhaps the kids that you hang out with or don't hang out with. And so when it comes to the domain of your existence at school, Jesus is held at arm's length. You adopt the posture of Herod. You want to be your own sovereign at your school. Perhaps it's in terms of business where you're afraid of what Jesus might mean if you bring him in close and his sovereignty and rule into the workplace. And the way that you conduct yourself, the way that you treat other people, and you want to just go along with the ethos and the ethics that are in place in your workplace, but you know that those run contrary to how Jesus would have you live. And so you keep Jesus at arm's length with your business. Perhaps it's relationships, whether relationships in the home or relationships in the neighborhood or relationships uh, in the workplace, whatever it might be. But there are certain relationships that you value, that you hold on to, or perhaps that you are shoving away. Relationships that you would have to bring close if Jesus was sovereign. Relationships you'd have to let go of if Jesus was sovereign in your relationships. And so you surrender to Jesus in these areas over here, but you don't surrender to Jesus in your relationships. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian yet. You come with a friend, a spouse, your family. I know there are, are many like that in our congregation. And maybe this is the sticking point for you, is that you rightly perceive that to give yourself to the Christian faith is not to just adopt a system of ethics or a way of living, but it is to surrender yourself to someone who will rule in your place. And you're not quite sure that you are ready to surrender your self-rule. We don't let Jesus in because we don't want him to mess with our stuff. And that's exactly right because he will mess with our stuff. He does not come as a sage to give advice. He comes as a king to rule, and there cannot be two kings. Herod, just as much as the Magi, saw Jesus for who he was. But Herod wanted to hold on to his self-rule. What about the Magi? Why did they seek Jesus? What drove them? might be tempting here to, th- I had to think about this for a little bit. I w- it wasn't obvious to me right away what drove the Magi. My first thought was a bit cynical. And it's tempting, perhaps, to think of the Magi as simply 
following a path of political expediency. Magi visited Nero, the emperor Nero, when he rose to power. They came from the east and they brought gifts to Nero and there they honored him as the great emperor of the Romans. And we might think that perhaps the Magi in that situation are simply working out their alliances and they're trying to get on the good side of the Roman power. Perhaps the Magi in the east are doing something similar. They see a neighboring kingdom and they see a sign in the heavens and so they want to come and get on the good side of this new Jewish king. If a new Jewish king was to be born, let's be on good terms with him. Let's position ourselves to be advantaged by the relationship. He wasn't as much of a direct threat to Herod or to the Magi as he was to Herod, so they could uh, just as easily get along with him. Maybe that was their motivation. But Matthew doesn't present the Magi in such a cynical light. Something more than political expediency seems to be driving them. No doubt when they arrive at the humble birthplace, birthplace of Jesus, any illusions that they would gain a political advantage from their association with Jesus died with the smell of the manure in the manger. He clearly was not going to be destined for something great. It might have seemed to the Magi when they showed up in the humble village of Bethlehem and they approached Mary and Jesus I know some of you purists, by the way, you know that the Magi probably weren't there at the time of the, of the birth and that the shepherds and Magi were differently. Well, you can send me your emails later if you want. I know that. I'm just making the point here, all right, that Jesus' birth was a humble birth. So whether he was still in the manger or whether he was somewhere in Bethlehem, clearly when the Magi show up, he's not in the palaces of Jerusalem. And they would have known right at the beginning that he wasn't probably, from all appearances, destined for something great. And how tempting it might have been to think twice about returning home with their valuable gifts, right? They got the camel full of gold, another camel full of frankincense, another camel full of myrrh, and they show up at this little house, whatever it was, and they're like, this We're going to drop all of our gold off to these people? Why don't we just, you know, we'll go back and tell our king we passed it on and we'll just take a little bit for ourselves. I don't think it was political posturing. Taken at face value, they really believe that they have seen a divine omen in the stars, that the gods or God have spoken to them. And they are overjoyed to see the face of the one whose birth had been so unusually and dramatically foretold. No doubt they do not fully understand who they have encountered. How could they possibly understand who they have encountered? Not even Jesus' disciples understand his full identity until after his resurrection. But the Magi know the divine when they see it. They rejoice when they find Christ and they worship at his tiny feet, not because they think he will provide from them For them, a political advantage, how unlikely that might have seemed at the moment, but more simply because they believe him to be worthy of worship. And so we see in the Magi the purest and truest response to Jesus. We worship him because we believe him to be worthy of worship, not because of what he can do for us, but because of who he is. 
So who are you more like this morning? Are you more like Herod, seeing Jesus as a threat to certain areas of your life, perhaps the whole of your life, such that you want to keep him at arm's length, away from certain rooms in the house of your life, or perhaps from the whole house altogether? Or are you more like the Magi, seeing Jesus as worthy of worship simply because of who he is? And here's the irony of it. We keep Jesus at bay because we believe he will wreck things. We believe if we let him into our business or into our school or into our friends or into our marriage, into our entertainment choices, that if we let him in, he's going to wreck things and ruin things. But surrendering to the kingship of Jesus is the only way to know peace. Jesus does not ask us to bend the knee to his kingship simply so he can assert his dominion over us. He is not like Herod, some megalomaniac who is insecure about his rule and sovereignty. He asks us to bend the knee because human knees work best when they are bent before him. We lack the resources and the wisdom to self-govern. However much our world and our self-help books tell us to the contrary. If we want to know joy, true joy, if we want to know peace, true peace, then we must surrender our lives and all that we hold dear to the one who is truly king of all. And the great gospel truth is that when we worship him for who he is, simply because he is worthy of it in the posture of the Magi, not because of what we think we can gain from him, he in turn uses his kingly power to bless us in his time and in his way. Irenaeus, the great church father, wrote these words. If then you are the work of God, await the hand of God. The hand he refers to is Jesus. It's a way that he refers to the Son. If you are a work of God, await the hand of God, who does everything at the appropriate time. The appropriate time for you who are being made. If therefore you offer to him what is yours, that is faith in him and subjection, you will be a recipient of his skill and become a perfect work of God. When we offer what is ours to God, when we offer ourselves to God, we become a recipient of his skill and we become a perfect work of God. So as we anticipate the arrival of Jesus on Christmas morning together as a church and we celebrate and anticipate his coming, we look at the examples of Herod and we look at the examples of the Magi. And I would encourage you, I would encourage myself to to take some time and to reflect and think as we commit, continue on through our communion service about where in your life you're responding to Jesus more like Herod than the Magi and where in your life you're responding to Jesus like the Magi more than Herod. Perhaps there are some areas that you need to let go of and let Jesus in. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you now in the coming moments as we reflect 
on who Jesus is and wants to be in our lives as the King of the Jews. Let's pray.